0: This is a podcast from 3RRR102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You dig it! Oh, wow! Don't know it's the
1: end of the world?
0: Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land death praise for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm
1: welcome 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 to greening the apocalypse triple r's weekly foray into the ecological economic and energy and games does that make sense? Near enough. Bushy is still in lotus position in a cave, tapping into the universal vibrations of 90s grunge metal gods in his 21-day Chris Cornell morning period. I hope you're doing okay, Bushy. He'll be back next week, though. Sarah Coles is here, though. How are you, Sarah Coles?
2: I'm tired. <laughs> it's
1: not a good response. <laughs> Act peppy.
2: Okay. I'm <laughs> feeling great.
1: That's the spirit. I'm,
2: I'm pumped about ecological
1: collapse (laughs) me too i
2: love the (laughs) destruction no i'm I'm tired but well
1: yeah well we (laughs) were up early recording this interview for tonight yeah
2: that was a pretty great interview i gotta
1: say yeah well before we get to that uh also in the studio with us behind the knobs and dials jed mccartney how are you jed good how are you adam pretty good we have some bike related facts later for you yeah, I was, I was just watching
0: that. Oh, cool. Yeah. dude's um, definitely a sprinter, isn't he? The big legs. Like yes. Massive. Well,
1: you'll find out what Jed's talking about later. <laughs> it's quite interesting.
0: It's very interesting. Richard Heiberg was who we
1: spoke to, Sarah and I did earlier today. Richard's a senior fellow with the Post Carbon Institute and is regarded as one of the world's foremost advocates for a shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuels. He's the author of 13 books, including some seminal works with titles like The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic, Economic reality and Power Down Options and Actions for a Post-Carbon World. Mostly we're talking about his latest book though, which is Our Renewable Future, Laying the Path to 100% Clean Energy, co-authored with Berkeley energy expert, David Fridley. We're actually going to split this interview over two nights because it was so good. We just kept talking. So tonight's going to be the first part of the interview and we called him uh, at his home in Santa Rosa, California. And what did you ask him to begin with, Sarah?
2: Can't
1: even remember. It seems like it was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was something about, um, well, we asked him to explain what the Post Carbon Institute is.
3: Uh, Post Carbon Institute is a small nonprofit think tank um, headquartered here in the United States. And uh, we do research and publications related to the immense task. That we have before us over the course of the 21st century of getting off of fossil fuels. And of course, there are lots of issues surrounding that uh, issues having to do with fossil fuel supply limits, issues having to do with uh, renewable energy capabilities and strategies for. Uh, reducing our use of fossil fuels, uh, climate impacts, and so on. So we can't study all of that, but we we definitely try to contribute to the the global conversation on this.
1: Now you came to prominence, at least in my eyes, as an author of the Party's Over, which is, I think, was one of the very first books which brought the concept of peak oil into public awareness, at least fringe parts of the public like me. Um, Maybe (laughs) in a nutshell, could you just remind our listeners what what peak oil is?
3: Right. Well, fossil fuels have played an extraordinary role in the history of our civilization, even though our use of them only goes back uh, maybe a century and a half or two centuries, something like that. uh, They've changed everything uh, as a result of having cheap, abundant energy We have increased the rate at which we can transport ourselves and our goods, the rate at which we can uh, extract other resources from the ground and transform them into uh, consumer products. Um, I could go on and on. I mean, the the growth of the middle class is mostly a result of fossil fuels, consumerism as a result of fossil fuels. Uh, You know, we could talk about this in much more detail but uh, it's it's been a, an utterly transforming period. and the the thing is fossil fuels have two extraordinary drawbacks, one of which, of course, is is climate change. As we burn fossil fuels, we release greenhouse gases that uh, cause global warming. But the other is that these are depleting non-renewable resources. So uh, you know basing our whole civilization on, consuming these resources at an ever-increasing rate is kind of uh, crazy from the get-go. So how, you know, how far along are we in the process of depleting these fuels? Well, it's a different story with regard to coal, uh, oil, and natural gas. Uh, oil is economically the most important of the fossil fuels because we base virtually all of our transportation on it. And we've extracted it using the low-hanging fruit principle, which means that we've gone after the cheapest, highest quality, and easiest to get oil first. And and we've left the nasty, hard-to-get, expensive stuff for later. And it's later. Uh, Virtually no new conventional oil is being discovered. These days, we're relying increasingly on unconventional oil, which means tar sands up in canada it means uh, deep water and ultra deep water oil as in the gulf of mexico and off the coast of brazil Uh, it means heavy oil like in uh, venezuela it means tight oil that uh, we produce here in the united states through fracking and horizontal drilling all of these again are more expensive to produce uh, entail more environmental risks And uh, and that's basically all that's left from the standpoint of the oil industry. So the oil industry needs very high prices these days in order to turn a profit. Uh, Currently, oil prices globally are pretty high in the range of uh, 50 U.S. dollars per barrel, which, you know, historically adjusted for inflation is uh, again, you know, it's it's a pretty high price, but it's not nearly high enough. For the oil industry to be profitable, and so most oil companies are seeing declining profits, very high debt levels, uh, declining investment in upstream production, um, which means that we'll have uh, less oil to produce in coming years. And so we're we're really watching the oil business go into freefall from a consumer standpoint. It doesn't look so bad because uh, oil prices aren't as high as they were, you know, three or four years ago when they were up around $100 a barrel. But from the standpoint of the industry, these are are not good times. And uh, what all of this means, you know, sort of bottom line is, you know, we have this resource that we're hooked on. We depend on it for all of our transportation, for agricultural chemicals and uh, plastics and lots of other things. We don't really have a plan B, and, uh, and the, whole, uh, the whole industry is starting to creak and groan and come apart at the seams. This is not a story that you will see on every news site on the Internet that you'll hear about on every uh, news radio show, but it's extremely important and one that people should be paying more attention to.
1: So it was around the time when you published The Party's Over. Well, maybe in 1999, I think there was an article in Scientific American by Colin Campbell and John LaHare. Yes. Two former oil geologists who more or less blew the whistle or published their own research into the the remaining oil resources and what they saw as this coming peak where we would, after a certain point, have less and less oil to go around year on year. Mm -hmm. And it seemed for the best part of the next decade, peak oil was becoming a more prominent issue, and that seemed to rise in lockstep with oil prices. What happened <laughs> after then? Because it seems like you might think that this issue was a mistake and that it's gone away. Is the issue of peak oil still real?
3: Uh, absolutely. Actually, Jean La uh whom you just mentioned, uh, the French uh, petroleum geologist, uh, I think was... Um, almost exactly right on in his forecasts of uh, world oil production he said that global production of conventional oil would peak around 2010 and actually it's been at a plateau since about 2005 Uh, so that was that was spot on he also said that global convention or global production of unconventional oil the stuff i was just talking about the you know, tar sands, tight oil, all that stuff would peak around 2015, and that seems to be just about right, uh, too. Uh, we, it, you know, technically it may be more like 2017 or 2018. Uh, it's really hard to tell at this point, but uh, with declining discoveries of new oil and with less money being invested by the industry. In uh, in future production and discoveries, it, it's almost certain that we'll see declining overall production over the next next couple of years. But at, uh, to your question, you know, why did the whole discussion about peak oil sort of go away? Well, it's because uh, so much new oil was brought online in the unconventional category. You know, once once we saw the peak of conventional oil and oil prices starting to rise. Suddenly everybody became concerned about the idea of peak oil. It was, you know, uh, web searches went up, uh, lots of books were published, people were talking about it. But then suddenly uh, we had a lot of new oil coming online from uh, tight oil uh, in the United States, from Canadian tar sands and so on. And uh, especially in mid-2014, after the price of oil uh, went back down to, well, for a while it went down to, you know, 30 bucks a barrel, 30, $40. Then suddenly all the interest just went away. It, the, the, the industry, it was seeming, was flooded with oil. You know, it, the problem was we had a glut. And so the idea that we could be hitting peak oil when the the market was actually glutted just seemed nonsensical. So everybody just basically lost interest in the subject. And this is very ironic, you know, because the whole purpose of the peak oil discussion was to warn society about this inevitable point when global oil production would decline. And it was clear that we needed about a decade's warning in order to prepare ourselves. You know, you you can't just retool a global economy to not use petroleum when we're dependent on it for so many things. It takes time to change out the transport system, to to retool our agricultural, industrial agricultural system, and all of these things to not be dependent on oil. So we needed at least a decade of warning. Well, the, the peak oil authors and scientists and petroleum geologists and so on, all those folks gave us a decade's warning. But... Nobody did anything. There was this flash of interest where people started talking about it, but not much was actually done. And so here we are, ironically, in 2017, and people have lost interest. They're not talking about it much anymore. Nobody's done anything. And meanwhile, we're heading right up to that point where global production of all liquid fuels, including unconventional oil, is just about to top out and uh, and start declining we and again as i said earlier we don't have a plan b and we've kind of blown our chance
1: so so the fracking boom which sort of took up some of the slack for from conventional oils you're saying that its outlook isn't particularly rosy from a production perspective
3: Right. I, I wrote a book about this a couple of years ago called Snake Oil, and it's based upon some research uh, that was done in-house at the Post Carbon Institute. And the lead author, scientist on that research is uh, David Hughes, who had a long uh, career with the Canadian government doing energy and particularly fossil fuel supply analysis uh, for the Canadian government. So he, he has looked at very deeply at the uh, at the fracking boom and and we have a, a number of extensive reports available for free on our website postcarbon.org that you can read that go into a great deal of detail about uh, drilling rates the geology of of uh, the, the back and play in north dakota and the eagle ford play and in, in south texas and so on the bottom bottom line is these are uh, geological formations That have very low permeability. So the oil is there, but it doesn't move very easily. That's why it has to be produced by hydrofracturing and horizontal drilling. But even with these technological interventions, once you get the initial flush of oil production from these fields... Uh, it's very difficult to maintain production levels. They typically decline very, very fast. So the industry has to drill and drill and drill in order to maintain production rates. But within these fairly extensive geographic areas where tight oil is present, only very small restricted uh, core areas, what are sometimes called sweet spots, are actually profitable to drill in and these smaller core areas are being drilled out very rapidly. And as the industry has to move outside the core areas into uh, less prospective regions, the, the cost of drilling increases, the decline rates increase, and the profitability just uh, goes away. And that's, that's where the industry is headed right now. In fact, even when oil was uh, $100 a barrel, most of the drilling in tight oil reservoirs in North America was unprofitable now that oil's at fifty dollars a barrel, almost all of it is unprofitable. But because of the peculiar business models of the companies that are pursuing this resource, business models relying very largely on uh, debt and you know talking uh, investors into you know, funding. These, uh, these operations that are very slow to turn a profit, if ever. Well, they're continuing to produce more oil than the, than the market can actually absorb, which depresses prices, reduces profits, and, uh, and these companies are skating on very thin ice. It's, you know, it's, it's a boom and bust cycle, uh, which, of course, the history of the oil industry is, is full of. But, uh, but it's very definitely headed right now from boom to bust. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R.
1: We're continuing our interview now with Richard Heinberg, who is one of the intellectual godfathers of this show, I would say. Would you say, Sarah? Um. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, anyway, he's somebody that has definitely influenced both Bush, Bushy and myself, and I think you too. And we were very fortunate to speak to him. This is the second part of our interview with Richard, uh, where he can he's going to talk a little bit more about his latest book, Our Renewable Future, laying the path to one hundred percent renewable, one hundred percent clean energy. So, Richard, all these, all oh, all these financial details about a type of energy extraction strategy it could be easy to forget just how relevant they are to our personal lives could you just tell us just briefly i imagine when you first came across this issue i don't know if you were like me you found yourself walking through an alien landscape where people were <laughs> driving and they looked miserable about it in single car vehicles and burning this precious resource and being so oblivious to its significance, and uh, just taking opening your eyes and just seeing all around you petroleum-based products. Did you have a similar experience?
3: Oh, absolutely! I still do all the time, especially when I'm in airports, because you know it, it's possible to imagine uh, lots of people driving electric cars, and and you know I think that's that's increasingly happening. But uh, you know. We're never going to be flying in uh, in three hundred passenger electric planes. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, battery technology is uh, is just incapable of of uh, uh, you know, supplying energy and supplying power at the rates needed to, to get a, a big plane like that off the ground. So, you know. Every time I'm in an airport, I look around and I see all these people take just taking this for granted that somehow it's a God-given right of modern uh, industrial people to, uh, you know, go to airports and get on planes and fly for hundreds of miles at, at very low cost. Um, when in fact, this is a, uh, you know, this is a, an incredible privilege that people uh, in the past could only dream about. And I'm sure people in uh, a couple of decades will look back uh, with envy and probably longing and regret <laughs> that, you know, they didn't, uh, th- they weren't more grateful for this this, this fleeting opportunity. Uh, but, you know, th- th- that's just one example. Mo- modern industrial agriculture depends upon... Um, fertilizers made from fossil fuels Uh, it depends upon herbicides and pesticides made from fossil fuels i'm talking to you using my computer right now and if i look at my computer it's mostly plastic made from fossil fuels Uh, fossil fuels are primarily sources of energy and energy is what makes everything happen without energy we can't do anything and it's the amazing Uh, portability and abundance of energy from fossil fuels that enables the modern world to function. So the importance of fossil fuels in our lives can hardly be overstated. We tend to take that almost completely for granted. And we assume that, you know, if fossil fuels go away, other energy sources will just magically appear to take their place But, you know, if you talk to people in the energy industry, people who actually, you know, spend their lives working with um, energy sources, you're quickly disabused of that belief. Uh, It's going to be a very big deal to replace fossil fuels.
2: Um, Richard, that's what your latest book is about. So you've co-authored a book on what a renewable-powered future might look like called Our Renewable Future, Laying the Path to 100% Clean Energy. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the ideas of that book?
3: Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, First of all, the book is the result of a year's um, research and exploration that I undertook in in partnership with um, one of our post-carbon fellows, David Fridley, who's also on the uh, energy analysis program at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories. What David and I found was that although solar and wind power are growing fast, and they're getting cheaper, there are a lot of challenges in the way to a full transition away from fossil fuels and toward solar and wind power. Now, when we say that, we're, we don't mean to discourage efforts to make that transition. We believe that it's absolutely essential that we as societies, as, as industrial societies, invest as much effort as we possibly can to get off of fossil fuels and to d- to develop alternative sources of energy. And, and solar and wind certainly are two of the best candidates, probably the two best candidates for alternative energy sources. But at the same time, I think we have to be realistic that, um, first of all, solar and wind. Are intermittent sources of energy. Uh, The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And that means that as we rely increasingly on these energy sources, we're going to need forms of energy storage. And that doesn't come for free, whether we're talking about batteries or pumped hydro storage or giant flywheels or compressed air storage. There are lots of things being discussed. Each of these comes with a cost and that cost is going to increase as we uh, as we increase the percentage of total energy coming from these intermittent sources another problem is that uh, these sources produce electricity and there's a good part of that which is that you know electricity is a very versatile energy carrier And the way we customarily produce electricity with fossil fuels is very inefficient. Burning coal or natural gas to produce electricity is uh, maybe 60% efficient at best, but in most cases much less than that. Whereas with solar and wind, we're producing electricity directly without having to convert from one energy source Uh, namely coal and and natural gas to another, i.e. electricity. So that's good. However, we we only use about 20% of our final energy in the form of electricity currently. So the other 80% of the energy that we use is in the form of liquid fuels, which we use, again, for transportation, for running tractors and agriculture and, and so on and so on. Or as gaseous fuels, mostly natural gas, which we use for home heating, for producing fertilizers, for agriculture, um, for heating uh, water, for all kinds of industrial processes, and so on and so on. So, taking these the, these eighty percent of our other energy uses and transitioning them so that so that we can use electricity to perform those functions that's going to that's going to take a lot of investment and and engineering for example how we make cement for concrete concrete is is basically the foundation of modern civilization you know if you look around you in a modern industrial city concrete is everywhere But cement is the the key ingredient in concrete. And the way we make cement is extremely energy intensive. It requires very high temperatures, about 1,500 degrees Celsius. And nobody is producing cement without using fossil fuels currently. Maybe theoretically it could be done someday, but there are no pilot projects and and practically nobody is, is even thinking about how to do that. That's just one example. But as you look at resource extraction industries, metallurgy, take a, something as common as a smartphone and think about how many components are in that smartphone, how many individual chemicals and metals go into the production of that smartphone Uh, how much transportation was involved in uh, moving those materials around to where assembly processes were done and then try to imagine that smartphone being manufactured without any fossil fuels it's really a daunting prospect there's, there are no smartphones being produced today anywhere in the world that don't require fossil fuels for their manufacture, and it's not likely to happen anytime soon.
1: That was the first part of our interview with the marvelously thoughtful Richard Heinberg, author most recently of Our Renewable Future, Laying the Path to 100% Clean Energy, which you can read for free online. Uh, just Google it, but it's a, it's ourrenewablefuture.com, I think, or .org. We're going to continue our interview with Richard next week because it was so good, and next week he's going to talk a little bit more about stuff we can do in our everyday lives and also what what it would be like more to live in a world that was powered 100% with renewable energy. We're also, go to- I
2: think he got a bit agony aunt because you were asking him about romance and being an energy nerd. <laughs> So, if there's any energy nerds out there listening,
1: tune in. Get some personal advice from (laughs) post-carbon senior fellow Richard Heinberg. You're greening the apocalypse on 3RRR. Have you ever tried, you know, when you've run out of petrol, pushing your car to the side of the road? Have Mm. you ever thought if your car was powered by humans, how many humans it would take to push it that, you know, as far and as fast as you have to go? What if you had to have humans power your entire energy, like everything in your life, going back up the, the chain of energy going into all the products that you consume. Well, it turns out you would need a fuck ton of humans doing all the labor for you. And the concept is called energy slaves. And that's what we're going to talk about in this wildcard segment. And we were just interviewing Richard Heinberg, the energy expert on the phone from California. We're going to hear more from him next week, like we said. And in his latest book, which uh, is called Our Renewable Future... He talks about this concept of energy slaves, so how about I, to explore it further and just figure out where he gets his maths from, shall I read that section?
2: Yes, that would be informative.
1: All right. So he says, um, summing all the energy use in the world, our world currently uses about 520 quadrillion British thermal units each year, which I think, from memory, is the energy in a match If you burn a match. So we use 520 quadrillion, I don't even know how many zeros that is, or 153 billion megawatt hours, the equivalent of 100 billion barrels of oil every year. Now, a hard working human can generate power in the range of 30 to 300 watts.
2: What per year?
1: No, watts is a measure of power, so that's how much output you're putting out at any one time. Since the upper part of that range is realistic for only trained athletes using their leg muscles, let's start with a more conservative and realistic number.
2: What about Bushy doing stonemason stuff?
1: It's it's probably about what he's operating at, actually. So um, 100 watts. Sustained for an hour, that could be 100 watt hours of energy. So watts are a unit of power, watt hours are a unit of energy. Working eight-hour days, five hours a week for a year with no holidays, our hypothetical hard worker would produce... 208,000 watt-hours of useful work or 208 kilowatt-hours. World energy usage, therefore, equals the output of the yearly manual labour of 733 billion humans, more than 100 times the global current population. So what that means is for for the average human on the planet, there are 100 energy slaves doing our bidding.
2: What does it mean for Australians?
1: Well, Australians use about 3.5 times the global average. So we have about 350 energy slaves, if you will. Invisible, hard workers, just doing all our bidding all the time, which if you put it in the terms of you know, his- historical conditions, like if you had that many actual slaves, you're a big deal and an mm-hmm. asshole.
0: And these yeah. <laughs> energy, energy slaves come in the form of um, oil and petroleum, that's, mostly.
1: That's right. And yeah. it's almost entirely derived from fossil fuels. We were looking earlier at this um, graph of where as- Australia's energy comes from. Uh, and honestly, the input coming from renewable sources is lost in the noise. Like, it's just a fraction of 1% of of our energy is coming from them currently so all really all that energy is coming from fossil fuels so we just thought well why don't we have how have you guys what if what have you done how have you employed your energy slaves today
0: well what have yours got up to um mine powered my vespa to work yep they then um powered the heater that was on when i got to work to make it warm they then powered my computer until I went to have some lunch, and they probably powered a, a heater to to warm my lunch.
1: Heating um, is one of the biggest ones, isn't it? Yeah. Like uh, if you look at the wattage on your appliances, um, your like you know a, light, a pretty bright light globe these days would be sixteen watts. A heater is usually up around two fifteen hundred two thousand if yeah. it's electric. So that's just in, yeah. Turning that on it for so, a tiny bit,
0: yeah. So if you days. run that for a, you know, a few hours, yeah, getting up to that person's output, like that's one slave just doing the heater.
1: Oh yeah, well several no several slaves yeah. because if it's fifteen hundred and we're saying it's, uh, on yeah, average it's they're putting out hundred right? yeah one hundred that's fifteen slaves just running your, um,
0: yeah. yeah running the heater. It it was interesting just while you were talking I was thinking back to um, when they built the pyramids. And they didn't have um the slaves in the form of cranes and you know that were powered by fossil fuels. they used human power hmm. uh, they must have just had massive numbers of people, yeah lifting those blocks into place, yeah, like, and like lot, literally energy slaves,
1: and like a lot less it convenient than ours because you you know there can be uprisings, <laughs> yeah. yeah Moses might get involved or something you know um. yeah. <laughs> so what about you Coles um,
2: i've got a I bear a heavy burden today heavy energy burden. Yeah. I had Danishes for breakfast, mm-hmm. and they were probably made from conventional flour, so that's probably pesticides, fertilizers, combine harvesters. The flour probably didn't even come from Australia, yeah, so there was probably a great deal of embodied energy in my Danish to kick <laughs> the day off and then I live in a energy inefficient rental, yeah. So, we're always probably using far too much heating, I think. Yeah. Mm, you know. Oh, and I drove here because it was raining before. So, I guess all the energy of the actual road.
1: That's, yeah.
2: That would be a big one.
1: Totally. The embodied energy in the road. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Richard was mentioning in that interview that about 20% of our energy is uh, used in... Electricity, and that's roughly true in the home as well, and indeed most. I think. Uh, so if you if you think about your your energy use as a whole, you have to really think about the energy embodied in the products and and in the infrastructure that you use, and the direct energy that you use is just one fifth, something like that. But it's the thing that most easily comes to mind. So thinking about stuff like roads or food that you ate. That's where most of the energy that you use...
2: What about a saucepan? What about it? I I mean, like, I cooked with gas, which isn't fantastic. And Mm. then how much energy did it take to make the saucepan that I used anyway?
1: Yeah. So the shorter the life
2: cycle of it, the more... which probably came here on a boat powered by fossil fuels from very far away.
0: It's a good point, though, because, like, I thought about it and I thought about, um, you know, the fuel in the Vespa. But if you think about all the energy that went into manufacturing that, and it's tyres and what have you, and then the road that it, I travelled on. Yep. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. about
2: that I'm wearing these weird hiking clothes that are probably made of plastics?
1: Yeah, made from some kind of fossil fuel. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but even natural fibres have been grown with combine harvesters or whatever, or well, at least with um, farm machinery and artificial fertilisers and been processed with fossil fuels and shipped all around the place. So I'm not sure if it's better or worse, but everything. But when you start to look around and see uh, both what is actually made of fossil fuels and what came to us and is processed by and got here via their energy, well you can't actually look at anything that's free from it, more or less. Yeah. Mm. Hey, I've I've got off Scot Free so far, I don't know if I've
2: <laughs> Yeah. what have what, you done? Yeah. I
1: don't know. I was just think I was thinking you about You
2: ate the Danish, my friend.
1: Yeah. Hi, <laughs> Heimberg quotes a a stat, it's probably for American food system, but it would be presumably pretty similar here, that for every one calorie of food we eat, 12 calories of fossil fuel go into its production.
2: Whoa.
0: Yeah. It's a shame it's not um, 12 calories, otherwise we wouldn't have an obesity problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <But It's not laughs> we didn't have to burn the 12 calories to consume that one. Oh, right, it's yeah, yeah. Well, well, we would have
1: a, I mean, we, we would have the opposite <laughs> yeah. problem. I mean, it's a, it's a perverse period in history where it's an advertising, it's a, it's a marketing angle that something has no or very little energy in it because by historical, for you know, the reason why we want sugar and we crave fatty foods is because energy was in short supply. Now we have such an excess of it that it's a problem. Uh, okay, but my, my, my sense for the day, I was thinking about like, um, I don't know, maybe just like internet searches. I don't, I don't think like using, you know, putting something into Google adds a, a huge load on the energy needs for the internet. But it's more the entire infrastructure and its existence of which you're taking part in, which... I mean, opting out might not make a huge difference, but it's just worth being aware that all of that takes massive amounts of energy uh, and incredibly high-tech factories which have to be maintained to make the silicon chips without even the tiniest dust speck getting into them. Uh, so uh, the, the energy just required to maintain that kind of control is actually heaps. And, yeah, even though we think of, like, you know, paperless office and and being able to not commute to work may, on average, have benefits, but uh, the the infrastructure under the internet and computing in general is a massive energy user.
2: So what you're saying is everyone should quit their jobs and get off the internet?
1: I don't know. I'm not saying anything, but it's just like... <laughs> It's, it's, just, it's just a matter of... Part of it is just being grateful this, for this stuff we call fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, they're destroying the planet. But, hey, let's appreciate them while we, you know, chew through them. Let's enjoy this feast. Enjoy This the disgusting war. abundance. Let's just eat it up with enthusiasm. Instead of just, like, just cruising through life <laughs> and, and churning granted. all these resources and Anna's being oblivious evil? to it. I know. I'd I'd rather us to when you just see deadened, bored people using all these resources, that is sitting,
0: the, sitting in their cars in the traffic jam. Yeah, that like, that's the you know, it's like, oh, And Apologies it. to people
1: that are. Yeah. But at this yeah. you know we're not we're not really getting on our high horse here and by sharing our sins, I hope that's clear. <laughs> but uh you know, it is it's still it's still party time, but it's after midnight. And uh, it's it's worth taking an audit of where in your life you use all this energy because that's often is going to be the things which will, if carbon taxes come in and if peak oil starts to create a dent in what's affordable, it's all those things which are going to become less affordable in your life. And the sooner that you can adapt to them, and as we discuss on this show a lot, a lot of those cutting out some of those things like you know overuse of um, media and being a little bit more self reliant, and having to create more community connections on account of that, because you're sharing more resources. A lot of this stuff creates inherently better lives, and we all do it to different degrees. And th- I think think our lives are better for it. Right?
2: When I lived on Phillip Island, I mowed the lawn with a pony.
1: <laughs> it took
2: a few days, but it was an enriching experience. <laughs>
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> did, did, <no. laughs> I was, yeah. was going to say, did you have to lead him around to make sure it was all even?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, we just let him run wild.
0: <laughs> have you had? An, have you,
1: do, you, do you feel like you've purchased your sins? your energetic and really. ecological also, sins. Also,
2: wh- how much power does this radio station take?
0: Oh, that'd be interesting because oh, it. Um, oh, none. No, no. Really,
2: none. Yeah, none. How?
0: It's very special. What? You know, Triple R
1: is special. <laughs> Well, there's a, big, there's a big transceiver up on Mount Dandenong, so it must pump out a little. But it's a very good use of energy. Some things are worth saving. Oh, well, we better commence and wrap up, but uh, what's happening, Sarah Coles?
2: Um, there's a MOOC that just started this week, a uh, free online course, New Energy Technologies, Energy Transition and Sustainable Development. So you can explore the development of new energy and discover key energy challenges with an online course. Uh, if you go to futurelearn.com and just type in energy... It'll come up.
1: Cool. Richard Heinberg's also got an online course, doesn't he? Our guest for this evening.
2: Ah, uh, yes, he's got one called Think Resilient. If you go to education.resilience.org, you'll find it.
1: We're going to hear more from Richard Heinberg next week, aren't we? Yes. Uh, he's going to talk more about what a renewable economy would look like. We've been creating the apocalypse. I'm Adam Grubb. We'll see you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR
0: 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.